I'm speaking with one of my favorite composers, Mr. Henry Jackman, who is uh, one of the busiest composers working today. Henry has quickly become one of the most recognized auteurs in the field and has proven himself one of the most versatile composers around, from Winnie the Pooh, X-Men First Class, Kick-Ass, Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter, Wreck-It Ralph, Puss in Boots, and more uh, this year. Has been extremely busy for him with G.I. Joe Retaliation earlier this year, and now This is the End, Turbo, and Captain Phillips coming up. Uh, Henry's also scoring Captain America, The Winter Soldier. Thanks so much for uh, talking today. Great to chat again. It's a pleasure. When I hear you list all that stuff, it makes it all seem worth it. It's a very nice introduction. <laughs> well, I'm glad. Uh, so we had an amazing in-depth interview last time where we kind of talked about your background and falling into film composing. So we can, I guess, jump right into uh, This is the End. Uh, I love how your projects are so vastly different from one another. Uh, what was the approach for this apocalyptic comedy, and what was the key to making the score work? Well, the clue's right there in the word apocalyptic. Um, what was what was interesting about This is the End um, is it really isn't like the score... If you just heard the music without seeing the film, I think you'd be fairly surprised to discover it's a comedy. Right, yeah. Um, right, because if you just heard the music, it's this sort of grand, symphonic, semi-hysterical, mystical, biblical, um, you know, grand apocalyptic theme. And uh, you'd be thinking, so no, how's that a comedy? But that was, to me, what was so interesting about the film and why I wanted to do it. Because often, I mean, I'm not knocking, there, there's all sorts of good music written for comedies, but in general, the comedy genre isn't usually an invitation for a film composer to unleash, you know, the epic forces of a symphony orchestra. It's usually, you know, a different kind of a shtick. Right. Um, but because <clears throat> it's a very unique film, it's a very, uh, it's hilarious for a start. I mean, you've seen the cast. And, and, and what's interesting about it is all the, you know, Jonah Hill and Seth and uh, James Banco and all the rest of them, they're all playing themselves. But with this added crazy element that there is in fact the rapture has kicked off in los angeles rather unexpectedly when seth was going to get some skins going to get some rizzlers <laughs> for him to, for him and uh, jay to spend the evening smoking weed and um, you know in the middle of going to get the uh the papers the uh the world started to end and <clears throat> what we discovered straight away in talking to evan and seth um who directed it uh, it was fairly obvious fairly quickly that the job of the score, the worst thing the score could do was try to be funny or right, try right, to yeah. support the guys, the comedy. What it actually needed to do was unleash full symphonic hell and support um, the rapture and the apocalypse and be completely committed and not pull any punches as if it were uh, some Roland Emmerich disaster film or, or as if it were the, you know, the... I. I remember referencing uh, in, when I was first talking to the directors, um, Jerry Goldsmith's The Omen, which I'm certainly not comparing to because that is um, <laughs> an absolutely brilliant score. And in fact, shockingly, I think that's the only Oscar Jerry Goldsmith won, which, which in itself is, is completely I ridiculous. Know. That's ridiculous. Um, he should have got all sorts of Oscars. Anyway, um, the point being that it, 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 was an it was sort of a guilty pleasure score. And it's not often if someone said... Um, you know, when, when I watch things like Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, you're like, oh, you know, gone are the days when you can unveil a full-blown, symphonic, mystical-sounding, semi-apocalyptic, you know, tune in that sort of committed way. And you wouldn't do that, you know, if it were, say, uh, yet another sequel to The Exorcist or something, something right, right. that was more serious, you wouldn't be able to do that. But what's ironic about being a it being a comedy, the more Carmina Burana stroke 
Goldsmith, Omen, you know, the more I go down that route and the more dramatic and symphonically committed and epic sounding the apocalypse is, the more ridiculous and hilarious Seth and the boys are. And, and the two are operating like <laughs> contrapuntally against each other. And it's not a hat on a hat where I'm trying to be funny in the score. And we found that work really well. And I, I noticed that, I mean, uh, just my favorite comedies, and you're looking, I, I love satires and spoofs and something like Tropic Thunder, where the mu- the music has to be serious or, you know, wrongfully accused, Naked Gun, like those classics, and they have to, and that really plays on the comedy. Do you think there's ever a time where music can be funny? Can music ever be funny in a comedy, or does it always have to kind of play a counter to whatever physically is going um, on screen? I'm just trying to think. I, I'm hesitant to say there's any fixed law about these things. And I'm sure, I'm trying to think of cues I've written where I'm encouraged to be amusing. And it, no, it does exist, but more, maybe more in animated films. I mean, right, there are some right. cues in, there's some cues in Turbo that have a very deliberate like levity. Mm-hmm. But even then, you should try to keep some symphonic and orchestral pedigree and class to it. There's something about when you really go for broad, um, if, if the music ends up sounding like broad comedy, there's something unclassy about that yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's true yeah <laughs> um, uh, and you're right all those examples you just gave are really perceptive they're all really good examples of movies that are seriously funny but that the score is i'd say another one actually is ghostbusters right oh yeah yeah of course <laughs> ghostbusters is highly entertaining i mean ghostbusters is well it's both a bit like uh, this is the end i mean i remember the moment in the fr- when um sigourney weaver opens the fridge and some hideous demonic creature is sort of, you know, at the back of her fridge. And it's the Elmer Bernstein score. That's all taken totally dead straight. That's a scary moment. Right. But then later in the film, you're hearing Ray Parker Jr. And you're hearing, you know, the pop song Ghostbusters. Uh-huh. And the two are quite happy living next to each other. And it, and it all works. And this is the end. You know, <clears throat> it has a bunch of needle drops. And there's some, you know, for the more montage moments. And for it's even got the Backstreet Boys in there. Um, so it's got all that, but then just because that's there, it doesn't mean, you know, seconds later, you can't transition into a, a cue that wouldn't be out of place in the exorcist. Right, right. Absolutely. And you mentioned turbo, which you have coming up also this summer, uh, from DreamWorks animation, you did Puss in Boots and Monsters vs. Aliens for them as well. Uh, is working, and you've been doing a lot of animation recently, is working on an animated film different than live action for a composer? I mean, in terms not the goals and everything, but like the process. Do so you have to adapt to certain things differently? Um, yeah, yes and no. The ultimate job of being a film composer doesn't change between the two. Right. Um, in as much as all films that are decently put together should, should be a coherent story and your job is to dissect that story and understand that story and understand the characters and understand the arcs and understand what themes are required and how you can support and enhance that and that is really no different uh, from a live action to an animation but there are certain characteristics which although they're not universally true they're generally true Mm -hmm. excuse me Uh, for instance I mean I would say that in general the amount of story events and transitions and ideas like per minute (laughs) In, in animation is always faster. You know, in a live action film, especially if it's a drama or something, you could easily have a four or five minute scene where two people are having a conversation and the psychology of the scene and the music would just stay the same. Mm-hmm. It's like one idea. 
for four or five minutes. That's very rare in animation. I mean, if you watch any animated film, over the course of a five-minute section of the film, probably many more things have happened and scenes have changed and characters have said things or realized things or we've cut to different situations. So you have to be more... Um, you've got to be more of a kind of compositional ballerina, kind of dancing your way and twisting on a dime and, and, and marking things more more regularly. The, the rate at which things are changing are almost always faster in animation. Mm-hmm. And uh, how early in the pro- production process do you come on for animation? Because it spans, you know, it's a much longer process and they have, you know, the pre-visualizations and the sketches. and the. So when do you really come in? That's true. Um, I mean, things vary a lot. Uh, it's not true always that in live action, the first time you get involved, there's a complete movie. I mean, you, like, for instance, with Captain America, I've been reading scripts and revised scripts and way before I'll see anything. But it is true that in animation, necessarily, um, because they take, say, four years to make, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> you're likely to be introduced to the story and the characters and the ideas if you're lucky, you know, a, a long time before the specific task of getting all the cues for the film written. So you can be starting to think about the more general ideas and themes and the characters. I mean, for instance, with Turbo, I met the, the director, David, um, in probably, seems like two years ago, maybe. And I hung out with him. And this was before, uh, I think I saw very little footage. The first day, he basically talked me through the whole film and uh, there were storyboards and character drawings. And um, you'd be amazed because if the story is strong, it's not like you need to, to get a really good grasp of the tone and the nature and the story of the film. Mm-hmm. You, don't, you, know, you don't actually need to see the full feature film. There's, there's, it's amazing what inspiration you can get from you know, a director who knows what he's doing, who's explaining what's important to him and explaining the story and explaining the characters and just with a few drawings and, and some storyboards, you can get a real sense of what a film is. And the advantage of that is you can be thinking about it um, long before the, the sort of more onerous task of, of crafting all the individual cues. That, that early lead-in time is great for sort of letting the overall idea sort of percolate in your subconscious so you can be sure you've got the right ingredients and you're coming up with the themes that are, you know, once you do deconstruct these themes and use them all over the film, you've had long enough to make sure the initial material, the basic thematic ideas are the right ones that will suit the film. Oh, wow, that's really fascinating. <laughs> um, uh, so you, in, in your projects, they differ so much in tone and emotions and uh, and even kind of jumping all around the genre map. How do you get into the right emotional state of mind for a score when you write? Do you have any routines or methods that get you and your mind in a certain emotional state, or is the project and story at hand usually enough to, to get you going? It's, if I was going to be flippant, I'd say it's the fear of the deadline. <laughs> <laughs> but um, that's a very negative way of looking at the world. I mean, there's some of that. Some of that is that, you know, you can't stare at your navel for four years and, and you know, pontificate about life and the universe because, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the movie's got to come out. And if the movie's going to come out and you're doing the music, guess what? You've got to nail the music. So some of it is is um, a uh, the the beneficial effect of of a particularly big film having a schedule that you know can't necessarily be broken from. But from the more creative side, um, 
I mean, the movies that I choose to do are usually because, you know, the phone call come and I'll go and hang out and look at it and get a feel for it. And what tends to happen for the ones you want to do is you, you think about it or you look at it or you read a script or you're seeing storyboards and it's, it's sort of doing something for you. You're, you're looking at it and you just instinctively go, yep, I can, so this, I understand this, I get the, the creative driving force behind this and it's coherent and, and you start to just naturally have ideas about it and, it and it, you know, in a funny way, your job is made easy. The more a director's vision is coherent, the more it's leaving the right kind of vacuum for you to step in and occupy that space and not be confused, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it was like that with Turbos, but same with Wreck-It Ralph. I remember early days of Wreck-It Ralph, I didn't see that much footage. I got the full lowdown of the film, and it just, it just made sense. It just made sense, and it, you feel like you're not too far away from <clears throat> having the ideas that will make a, a contribution to it. And um, so some of that, it really is, if, if a director's got hold of a story that works, then it really does, it, it's, you would think that irregardless of that, you should be able to come up with good music for anything, but I can't, it really does make a huge difference if something, is, if something coheres before you even get involved, then it's not just that you can be inspired by it, it's that as you start to work on it, it has an internal sense to it because all of the mechanics of the story have been thought out and there's a logic that then starts to come through in the music you're writing because you know if you're pegging yourself to a creative um, endeavor that's been conceived by someone and if it's been conceived coherently then the beneficial effect of that starts to flow through in, in what you're doing as a composer oh, that makes absolute perfect sense to me and you're working with uh an amazing director and auteur, Paul Greengrass, uh, with uh, Captain <laughs> Phillips, which is coming out later this year. He's one of my favorites. And he's worked with John Powell on his past films, and they definitely had an amazing collaboration. And uh, now you're stepping in. How is it, how is it working with Paul for the first time uh, and starting a, a new you know, collaborative effort? Was your sonic style a good match to his visual style? Well, it's what's interesting about uh, Paul Greengrass is that I'm talking about jumping around um, genres, it really is another completely different um, direction because the fascinating thing about Paul Greengrass as versus, I don't know, like a, even live action, like a superhero movie like X-Men or Captain America mm -hmm. and definitely a million miles from animation, is it's almost the absolute reverse of, because Paul Greengrass's style is so object, I mean he has a journalistic background Yeah, yeah and he's very politically aware, and he's a very thoughtful, he's just a thoughtful human being. So a movie like Captain Phillips absolutely isn't gonna be, you know, heroic American manning the ship as he's, um, you know, unjustly assailed by baddie Somalis who should all be shot in the head and, and you know, sent to jail. It's an incredibly morally ambiguous and psychologically credible film that completely comes out of his interests and his background. I mean, he used to be a journalist. I mean, if you just look at, you know, his films, United to 93, actually even Bloody Sunday. Yeah. Is, I mean, Bloody Sunday is a borderline, I mean, it's a movie, but it's borderline documentary, you know. Mm -hmm. And now the impact of that on musical style is that you have to repress 
some word repress is probably a pejorative word, but you have to you have to um, develop a style in which many of the devices that you would ordinarily use in storytelling in music themes and um, you know different harmonizations of the orchestra and like leading an audience um, are completely out the window. It's a completely different style where if anything you have to sort of cultivate a sort of aesthetic invisibility because with the mood when you've got those kind of psychologically credible performances from, from actors like Tom Hanks and in fact a lot of the actors are unknowns or real people who really you know do work on a uh, on the on the Alabama or these you know these, these shipping these guys who work on the boat I mean it's the same in 1993 the uh, air traffic controller who appears in that is actually an air traffic controller right yeah yeah that was Right, so once you get into that kind of filmmaking, nothing could be more destructive than some sort of like big symphonic classical theme that will just step all over that type of aesthetic. Mm -hmm. So it's the discipline of learning how much territory musically you can cover with the simplest imaginable elements. And sometimes it's just textural. And how much you could, like, if it were a painting, it'd be much closer to a Mondrian than a Caravaggio. Like, you can't, it's not narrative, it's not even figurative, it's, it's shapes and colors and textures to achieve and enhance, you know, uh, the, it, it, it's just sort of, it's like a, writing music that gets the correct psychology of music across without any of the invasive, elements of theme and 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 some of the more manipulative aspects of film score and that is just a completely different discipline and it just goes to show how um different things are required you know for different movies like a paul greengrass film as you know anyone who knows paul greengrass films knows that you know if you if you put bloody sunday up against jurassic park they're both films but i mean they just couldn't be more diametrically opposed and that you know and that's his aesthetic so um it's not the time to to think. Oh yes, Harry Potter, great! We can unleash <laughs> florid orchestration and endless themes. It, it's it's the reverse challenge of of seeing how much can be made from the simplest and most effective textural building blocks and without I, ever without ever invading some of the you know uh, a jaw stopping. Um, acting performances that just feel as real as you are likely to see in a film. And I, I can't wait for it. I mean, I, when I saw uh, your name on there too, I was like, oh, this is going to be extremely interesting to, to see. And I mean, United 93 and, and uh, Green Zone are so intense and visceral, and I, I think it's going to be a, a match made in heaven for you too. <laughs> um, I know Captain America is still far, far away, <laughs> and it's Marvel, so I'm sure they're listening right now, making sure you don't say anything. Uh, but can you talk about what you want to do for the sequel? Do you are are you expanding upon the first one, or are you kind of creating a new starting point? No, I th it's a new starting point, not because I'm uh, some natural anarchist or anything. The <laughs> the movie, <laughs> I've I've read, um, I've I've got the scripts, and you know I've received a few, and then you know they're working away and doing a few revisions and whatnot. But the the headline is very much, I mean, because the first Captain America was a sort of period piece. Um, and had uh, a, I don't know how you would describe it, it it's a morally uncomplicated baddie, as it were. Right, yeah, yeah. 
and was very much in the tradition of early Captain America. I mean, if you read the original, original comics, Captain America literally comes across as um, straight-up American governmental propaganda. If you, if you ever get hold of a, like the first three, if you just read the uh, first series of Captain America, he, he is an, uh, an unquestion, unquestioning beacon, <clears throat> excuse me, of, uh, in fact, what was the phrase? A sentinel of liberty. And he, you know, marches around the place, bashing up Nazis, making sure that uh, everyone understands that communism is bad, including even like lecturing small children as to the, um, the pitfalls of communism and how to spot a communist and report them to your mum and dad. And, you know, it's like full on almost, it, it, we're always tempted to think that propaganda only happens in, in Nazi Germany or, or, or Stalinist Russia. But actually in a slightly more gentle form, you know, Captain America really was full on patriotic um, uh, propaganda. But what's interesting about the history of Captain America within the comics is as American history, not American history, as, as events unfolded in, uh, over time and America had more challenging situations like Vietnam and, you know, America became a sort of more self-questioning place than it might have been, say, in the 40s or 50s, in the 70s. It's totally reflected in Captain America. Captain America, I'm sure someone's going to write some sort of thesis or they easily could do, uh, to demonstrate the correlation between the sort of national psyche of the United States of America and the sort of political st internal struggles and how that ended up being reflected in that comic book. Because what's interesting is it becomes a lot more morally ambiguous. Because um, the challenge you got with films like that, I mean, when you have things like Star Wars, it's very easy because Darth Vader, well, until you realize Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's father, it's very simple to have a, an out-and-out -out baddie because it's fantasy. And the stormtroopers, you don't worry about their parents every time they get shot or the life insurance that may or may not have to be paid. <laughs> Um, and Indiana Jones had the genius move of making sure the baddies were Nazis, because I think you know, you'd have to be a madman not to agree that the Nazis <laughs> need to be dispatched. But in modern filmmaking, what's a little more challenging is it's quite difficult to create a political or narrative landscape where it's very obvious who's standing up for values we can all believe in and who is definitely to be extinguished and dispatched, because um, a combination of how the media works and people maybe being a bit more informed with more sources of understanding what's going on in the world. The truth is, in the real world, it's not that common to have a completely um, uh, black and white situation as to what, what is corrupt and what is evil and what is... Um, you know, it's, I think everyone can agree there are certain things going on in the world that we, you know, we don't want to see, and there are certain values we'd, we'd love to see, especially if you come from you know, Europe or America. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about this cap the, the new Captain America is he's now a fish out of water in a completely contemporary society. And you know, the origin of Captain America is uh, a superhero who can unquestioningly believe that the American government um, is a, a beacon of, of democracy and freedom that can be spread um, without fear of contradiction across the world, correcting the ills of other um, evil and, and hideous regimes. Now, of course, if you dump Captain America in like 2013, um, it's a more politically confused landscape. And that comes through in the story. He's, he's at odds with the society he lives in. He's at odds with some of the things he's being asked to do. He's more questioning. There's a whole backstory, which I can't give too much away, that is emotionally haunting him. 
So there are many more aspects which make it more psychologically explorative and darker and more morally ambiguous. All of which I, th- you know, which I, I guess the quickest way to say that is it's, it's, it's a more contemporary look at it because we're taking an icon of patriotic superhero status from an era when that seemed very uncomplicated, it, uh, uncomplicated and superimposing it on a, a political and emotional landscape that is uh, a lot more challenging and seeing how the two, you know, smash together. Uh, this will be the second time you're actually filling in for, you know, in Alan Silvestri's footsteps, uh, your score for G.I. Joe and, you know, now Captain America. What's it, is, it, is it daunting or do you not even think about following in somebody's footsteps like that? Well, it's funny you say that because I hope he bears me no ill will because he's actually a, a, a hero and an influence for me anyway. Uh-huh. Um, the, I w- we may have spoken about this before, but um, when I was at school, when I was about 14, I was in a very strict English boarding school. Um, I was, you know, in the midst of studying, doing all my classical music studies and listening to Brahms and Wagner and Mahler and playing Debussy and Bach and all this kind of thing. Uh, I remember sneaking out of my room because us like little juniors had decided we were going to go and like steal the VHS player from the senior boys' room downstairs and watch Predator and hopefully not get caught. <laughs> and uh, so we did that, and we were like super excited that we had Predator on VHS, and we put it in, you know, because it was like an 18 film, so we weren't even supposed to be watching it. And halfway through the film, as well as enjoying this weird like infrared-looking alien who was busy picking off people one by one in the middle of the jungle, I was like, wait a minute, this music is massively harmonically sophisticated and is in the same category as that concert music, the kind of music I, you know, I'm studying at school because in my ignorance, I just, I don't know. Apart, I mean, obviously everyone knows that Star Wars is brilliant and John Williams, but that's almost in its own category. I was like caught off guard thinking I was just going to watch Predator with my friends. And then I was like, wait a minute, something else is going on here, which is like some really interesting tritone harmonies. And like this, this is, this is some serious, like normally when I listen to music, I can just track all the harmony and dictate it all in one go. And I was like, wait, 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 hold on a minute. You're going to have to rewind. <laughs> There's some voodoo going on in here that needs like further investigation. And I remember when the movie finished, um, the other guys were like, quick, quick, quick. You know, we've got to take the VHS and sneak it back and get back to our rooms before we get caught. And I was like, wait, no, hold on. Let the, let the credits go because I've got to see who... Uh, I got to see who the who did the music, and I remember seeing this name come out, Alan Silvestri. I was like, man, I got to remember that guy because that was that was like that was in the same class as some of the classical music I'm studying. Um, and you know, it's, he's done so many good scores, like all the Back to the Future scores. What about Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Oh, brilliant, Forrest, yeah, I love it. Yeah, he's just nonstop high. He's just nonstop class, Alan Silvestri. So I ho- I'm sure he's perfectly happy um, doing whatever. Uh, his next project is in, in, in luxuriating mate, on, on his vineyard in Santa Barbara, not get, probably thinking, let let that young idiot. <laughs> I simply can't be bothered to get involved in the second GI Joe film. Let let this young monkey have a go at it. Um, but no, you're right. It, what here's the, the 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 way to look at it from my point of view that makes me sort of pinch myself is when I tell that story. You know, so there I was at 15 years old. Uh, you know, watching that VHS thinking, you know, maybe one day I I might be lucky enough to be allowed to even get involved in doing music for movies. And now I find myself um, being allowed to score films that, that, you know, people of the caliber of Silvestri have been involved in, you know, only a few years previously. So from that 
from that perspective, I'm certainly, you know, it makes me, it, it certainly makes me feel humble about it because in my mind, it, it, it's incontestable that those guys are in a different league. You know, I just, as far as I'm concerned, Alan Silvestri is like a legend. No, that's, that's a great story. That's awesome. <laughs> um, well, to wrap up, I, I, last time I asked, I, we talked, I usually ask composers, if you could score any film ever made uh, with no disrespect to the original composer, uh, which film would you pick? You said Harry Potter, um, but this time let's twist it. And since you've been genre jumping a lot lately, uh, so far in your career, how, what, what have you found to be your favorite genre to to write for, to write music in? That's so difficult. I could, well, you know what it is? It was so difficult. The grass is always greener on the other side. Uh-huh. If I if I said something that was you know more symphonic or maybe like an uh, you know in the animation category, so you can really indulge, or a fantasy film like Harry Potter or like Spiderwick Chronicles or something like that, so you can indulge all your orchestral symphonic shops that that you know are rooted in the Western symphonic tradition, mm-hmm. then I'd probably start getting all miserable that I'm not doing like loads of production and electronic <laughs> stuff. But then if I pick something that's like full on production and not so much symphonic i'd probably then start going no no i wish i was doing more symphonic stuff so i don't know i think i um if i said harry potter last time i'd I'd tell you a film that with absolutely no disrespect to the genius who worked on it it would have been truly brilliant to have been involved in ridley scott's first alien film oh absolutely yeah because because it it would if you did it now. I mean, the Goldsmith score actually is very thematic and has a, an, an, um, a serious degree of symphonic class to it. I mean, you could you could put together a an orchestral suite from Alien and play it in the Walt Disney Concert Hall and stand it up alongside 20th century music, uh, uh, you know, concert music, and it would not be you know one. There would be not. Not a million. There wouldn't be like a, a a crack between the two. You know, it's it's of the highest class. But I guess if you were to do Alien now, you know, you'd be able to combine um, some really posh, maybe minimal symphonic writing with some really cool textual um, textual stuff. So I guess that that would be a really imagine the original Alien had never been made, and there was never Alien or Aliens, all those other ones, and there'd never right. been that franchise. And it started, you know, now, and there was Alien was made in 2013, but it was as classy as that first film. That really would be such a... Being Ridley Scott, it's got all that... It's got the tension and it's got the sci-fi, but it's also got an unparalleled degree of class to it as well. Yeah, definitely. Which is is difficult with sci-fi. Often, you know, people sometimes unfairly associate sci-fi with a little bit of goofiness. Right. But that certainly isn't the case. I mean, that that, that first Alien film is is it's a winner. Well, that's a great answer. <laughs> well, uh, Henry, thank you so much for your time. Your chatting with you is always absolutely fun and informative and uh, amazing. So I really appreciate your your time and and enjoying. I'm currently enjoying all your work. So keep it up, and I can't wait for everything that's coming that's to come. <laughs> no problem. No, it's been great. But um, no, it's always a pleasure. Give me a call when. Uh, when you want to hear me spout on about music, I'll happily do it anytime. <laughs>